Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Well, thanks for tuning in as we deliver you a destination episode after a couple of special eps, one on Chernobyl and another on van life that if you haven't listened to, you should. So this time we're looking at travel to Bangladesh. Look, we're told it's the unparalleled friendliness and hospitality of the Bangladeshi people that really sticks out. Well, so we hear in this episode anyway. But it's also a country known for its cuisine, from home kitchens to street food. It's rich in culture and the countryside is almost entirely flat. And that's because it lies in the world's biggest river delta, of course, the delta from the Ganges. Well, in this episode, we do hear from Ash, who we work with here at World Nomads. He emigrated from Bangladesh aged five. And we find out a few things about Bangladesh that you probably wouldn't have thought of. But let's kick off with Audrey. And together, she and her husband, Dan, have been described as adventurers, professionals, and most recently, Phil, as world travellers and storytellers. So where did all that begin? (laughs) I laugh because I'm thinking, where to begin? So Uncornered Market originally started, I guess it's about 12 years ago. So we were kind of one of the first bloggers. And it originally began on a round-the-world journey that my husband, Dan, and I were taking. And we thought, well, we'll document our travels and we'll use Uncornered Market as a sort of portfolio of the creative work that we wanted to do in terms of writing and photography and videos and things like that. And what we didn't know back then, um, because we thought we were just going to travel for about 12 or 18 months, is that Uncornered Market kind of took on a life of its own and it became you know, kind of grew as blogging grew. And so it turned into a business and kind of a website of exploration. And our focus and our goal has always been to explore places that perhaps are not very well known and tell a different story or perhaps tell a story that doesn't usually get told. And so that's one of the things that brought us to Bangladesh. Look, one of the things that you've got on your side is a beginner's guide to Bangladesh. What, what are the top tips you give to somebody when they're heading over to Bangladesh? So Bangladesh is not your typical um, tourist or travel destination still. Um, And my top tip is to go with, it sounds cheesy, but an open mind. I mean, Bangladesh is very different from many other destinations and it's right next door to India. So some people think, oh, well, it's going to be like traveling in India, but it really is quite a unique destination. It's a unique place and culture in and of itself. And Bangladesh doesn't get very many travelers. And so you as a traveler, especially a Western traveler, you might find yourself the object of attention. And it's because everyone is just so curious. I mean, the questions we got from people everywhere we traveled in Bangladesh were wonderful. Um, Everyone was just really interested to know where we were from, what we thought of their country, and they were so happy that we visited. And so you don't necessarily go to Bangladesh to see you know, famous sites or incredible buildings, you really go there for the people and the culture and just the experience of being in a very, I was going to say, very unique place. The the sheer number of humanity and people in Bangladesh can be quite intense, but it's also quite remarkable when you realize they're all there. You know, when we, Dan and I used to joke that when we walked down the street, we couldn't stop because otherwise people would start gathering around and it wasn't anything ominous. It was just people were really curious and they wanted to, to connect with us. So it really is quite an interesting place. It, that is consistent with a chat that we're going to be having later in the podcast uh, with a guy who says exactly the same thing, that normally he would travel and be respectful and not take 
photos. Um, but in Bangladesh, they want you to take their photos. They want to have photos taken with you. So they're very, very curious people. Yeah. I mean, we used to, we kind of joke that we must be on hundreds, if not thousands of people's cell phones or mobile phones (laughs) after our trip, because we would kind of walk down the street and all of a sudden we would look that everyone was taking photos and it wasn't anything malicious. It was just a curiosity. And one of the things that maybe shows how kind of unique or or, um, how curious people are and just the fact that not many travelers go to Bangladesh, we were there for over five weeks. And I think we saw four foreign travelers um, in the course of that time. And at the beginning, people would come up to us and ask if we were from Japan. And Dan and I are white. We're American, very, you know, European descent. We don't look at all Japanese. And we were kind of confused. Like, we, ha- we don't look at all Japanese. Why are they asking this? And it turns out the first travelers that started coming to, J- to Bangladesh were Japanese. And so they, after that, they started associating all foreigners, you know, with Japan. So it just kind of shows, again, this curiosity and the fact that they don't have very much interaction with other parts of the world and other travelers. Cut Japanese a generic term for tourist in Bangladesh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, in you know, it was also... And I use the word innocence in a very positive way. The questions, you know, I think because we were foreigners, we would get questions about our own, you know, our home country and what we thought about Bangladesh. But also I found that people would ask us things and they were curious about, they almost wanted to ask our opinion about, you know, things in their life. You know, I had a young woman asking me about my relationship with my stepmother and uh, my stepmother, my mother-in-law. At first I was really confused and it turns out she was going through these questions of she was about to get married and she was trying to figure out, you know, how she would interact and, and her relationship with her mother-in-law who takes a very big role. So it was a really, I was going to say, we even in, you know, train rides and bus rides, we, we ended up getting into some really interesting conversations that went beyond just what's your name, where are you from, but kind of went into the culture and life um, as well. And long may that rain. That sounds to me like, you know, the, the true essence of travel, isn't it? Where there's, mm-hmm. it's not about the sights, as you say, it's not, a, it, you can go there and enjoy the people and there is a, an openness, which is what, to me, travel is all about. Yes. And in Bangladesh, especially when you get outside the cities and you go into some of the more rural areas or communities, um, it's a little less overwhelming. And the reason why I say that is the cities can be quite crowded and, and full of people but it's kind of the pace comes down and you really have more time, um, you know, and people aren't afraid to come up to you and talk to you. So you say it's not about visiting places or things, but if you are in Bangladesh outside of, you know, these wonderful people, what would you recommend doing? So one of our favourite experiences was taking the rocket steamer, or the, I think it's called the rocket steamer or the rocket boat, which is, um, it's a very long journey, um, as in I think it was about 24 hours maybe from Dhaka, the capital city, and it goes south towards um, it, it, where it actually where it actually lands depends on the day because we didn't end up landing where we thought we were because of the water levels, but it basically takes you south and is kind of a connector to go into the Shunderbans. And one of the things that was really nice about this boat journey is. If you've ever watched the news, there have been some um, boats that have sunk or turned over in Bangladesh, but the rocket steamer is actually an old British um, ship that I think dates back to 1800s, and it's never sunk. It's very safe. It's slow. Um, And if you end up buying a first-class ticket, which at this point I don't know exactly how much it costs, but it's not very much, it ends up being a really nice 
experience because you're sitting at the front of the boat and you kind of watch, you know, you leave Dhaka, the capital city, and you just kind of, you know, you kind of decompress from, from the craziness of Dhaka into the river and then you're able to enjoy the sunset and the sunrise on the rivers because Bangladesh is really, it's a country of rivers. It's everything is connected by rivers and you could see the fishermen on their boats and making their dinners on their little, you know, tiny boats at night. And then also the Shunderbans, which is one of the areas where uh, there are wild tigers. And you generally go on a two or three night boat ride again. And for us, it was quite interesting because the journey that we were on or the trip that we were on we were actually with all Bangladeshi travelers. So it ended up being quite an interesting experience, kind of us with other city folk, you know, from Dhaka who are going down to the Shunderbans. And you're tracking tigers. To be honest, we never saw a tiger. Um, we saw some footprints. But at the same time, it's, it's a really nice experience because you're able to get on these beaches and go through these mangroves. And also just being on the water is, is incredibly relaxing. The other experience that we really liked, and I don't know if it's still going on now, but I'm sure that there's other ones, is an overnight or spending a few days um, with a homestay in a village. Um, and that is, it's a really, it's a way to connect with rural Bangladesh, which is also quite special in terms of the agriculture and the people and the culture and the food. Like some of the best food we had on our trip was in this homestay. Um, and then we also really enjoyed going into the Chittagong Hill Tracks, um, and that's above the city of Chittagong. There's an area where there's a lot of ethnic minorities. Many of them um, are from Myanmar. They did not come with the recent um, wave of refugees that are Rohingya, but they've been there. Some of them have been there for, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 years. And so it's you're able to visit different villages and also learn about different, many of them are Buddhist um, cultures and the markets are different and the food is a little bit different and there's actually alcohol there, which is legal. And it's the only place in Bangladesh where alcohol is legal. Um, and that's an also, there's, there's these beautiful hills and Buddhist temples and that's an also another beautiful area. And if anyone's panicking about the fact that you went first class at the time that you did it on this boat, it was $25 American for the two of you. Yes. And I'm, I'm sure the price has gone up a little bit. Um, but, and I think each meal was, I think, about 2 or $3 on the boat. That was a fabulous insight. Thank you so, so much. Appreciate it. I just have actually one more thing that I realized um, I wanted to add, and this isn't necessarily a site, but I would also say that when traveling in Bangladesh, try and travel by train as much as possible. The trains are wonderful. They're another you know, opportunity to, to interact and talk and connect with people. Um, and they also tend to be a little less hair-raising than the buses. Um, the roads tend to be, a, they, they can be a bit intense in times. So my other suggestion is to, as much as possible, travel by train. Well, I think Stuart is about to give similar advice. So thanks for that, Audrey. Now, travel to Bangladesh is on the increase, Phil. We know that. Yep. But there are still many unknowns for first-time visitors. And Stuart is a World Nomads contributor. He's written an article titled Seven Things That Surprised Me About Bangladesh. So, Stuart, what did you discover? How, how great it is to travel there by waterway, uh, to jump on the ferry there and to head along the river. It's not just about seeing the landscape. And obviously when you're on a boat, you've got lots of time to take things in and to to look about, to, to move about, but it's also the interactions with the people. While, you know, while I was on there, got chatting with 
various people because I'm, I'm guessing that they don't get masses of foreign travelers on the ferries. And so uh, to some degree, um, you know, people were like curious as to, you know, what I was doing on the ferry and, and why. And um, it was just really nice because I had lots of lovely little informal conversations with people uh, inside and on the decks, uh, you know, on the outside when I was looking at the scenery. And it was fantastic because it was just a, such a lovely, lovely way of slow travel. And what I didn't realise is just how extensive the network of boats is there. And there's a, there's a fair bit of water there. I mean, when you look at it on the map, the, you know, it's a massive river delta, the whole country really, isn't yeah. it? So yeah. So tonnes of water. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. The, 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 the waterways play an incredibly important uh, role in everyday life there. And I was told that the network stretches for something like 8,000 kilometres, so f- roughly 5,000 miles um, through the country. And that is, you know, that is phenomenal. So in many respects, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that the, the Ganges and the other rivers are starting to open up with the delta there, uh, if you don't travel on it, you don't, to some degree, experience the, the full um, the full nature of the countryside in Bangladesh. I thought Bangladesh was a lovely, lovely place to photograph. Because if you enjoy your street photography and you enjoy um, people photography and you travel, you'll be aware that in a lot of places it can be awkward. You know, people can not want to be photographed. People can turn the backs, you know, in, in certain countries it might be slightly difficult for men to photograph women. But in Bangladesh, I loved the openness of the people because uh, the the first experience that I had of this was when I was still in Dhaka. The, one of the first things I did, I went down to the, the, the market, the wholesale fruit and veg market. Of course, I had the camera in my hand and, and people started to notice that. And they began asking to be photographed. Um, it was it was like fear of missing out almost. That's how it seemed to me. People go, photograph me, mate. Uh, can you can you photograph me? And um, so, of course, I ended up um, you know, getting a whole load of lovely, lovely uh, portrait photographs of people working at the market. And um, that was pretty much true throughout my travels in in the country. Um, but one of the one of the absolutely lovely things is it was a two way process because people come up to me. Uh, with the smartphones and um, asked to, to have either photographs taken on me um, or, you know, occasionally, you know, can, can you hold the child and we'll get a photograph of us all together. Um, <laughs> it was absolutely lovely. And, um, you know, obviously people are a lot more reticent of doing that kind of thing, you know, in, in a lot of Western countries. But I guess, um, you know, when you, when you put a, a six foot four ginger bloke it, it, uh, you know, out on the street the darker, um, then, um, you know, kind of stood out and, and people did come up and, and, and chat and uh, and it was it was just a lovely lovely experience because uh, it shows that it shows that the country's not one of those places that's overrun by tourism and how people are welcoming to, to foreigners I thought you could have started your story with I'm a six foot four ginger <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, so hence the interest. And said a few people might have switched off this ginger. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be chatting food later in the episode because you also mentioned how wonderful Bangladeshi food is. But it's always great to give um, to give listeners, travellers some tips. And one of yours is, and in fact, Phil, the last couple of podcast destination podcasts we've done with featured road trips but Stuart, this is not something that you advise in bangladesh oh the roads the roads are a bit you know it, it it's like being on the moon in places there's big potholes um the traffic in the cities um is really quite something um the the dense density of the traffic at uh, rush hour in Dhaka and in Chittagong was, um, was, was phenomenal. I mean, you'd, looking out from where I was sitting, I could see battered buses, scrapes. You know, it was, it was interesting in many ways to be stuck in traffic for that long because, you know, you, as you're jockeying up the street, you see the same people in the bus the whole time and the kind of, you know, you start staring and waving at each other. But the, it, was, it was interesting to see the uh, rickshaws, how they, how they were kind of weaving in and out and, and not actually making things any quicker at all. <laughs> yeah. I to shift lanes. So it was, um, it, was, it was interesting. I mean, the journey from the air, airport to my hotel, which was downtown on the first evening, took over three hours. And I think that, um, you know, it, it wasn't even... Um, a super long journey. Um, it was something that really could be easily done within uh, 30 to 40 minutes oh. on the clearer road. And one of the fellas, brilliantly, he, um, he was told, oh, you know, it's just it's just a, a short journey. And he was kind of need the loo before he um, got onto the bus, but he thought, I'm going to be at the air, I'm going to be at the hotel soon. Well, of course, he was in desperate oh. We actually got there, so um, so that was interesting. Speaking of which, how'd you go with the food in Bangladesh? Because it's got a bad reputation. I, I mean, I know it's delicious, but did you get sick? No, no. Um, I, 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 well, I'll, tell, I'll come back to the sickness, but anyway, the food itself um, was phenomenal because uh, what I didn't realise is uh, how prevalent mash is there. I always thought um, northeast Indian subcontinent it's going to be a lot of white rice and, and certainly white rice is served, but way more prevalent um, on, on, on the homestays is uh, mash made with uh, mustard oil. So it's got a lot of flavor, really, really tasty. Um, and, and dal, ver- various variations on dal. And um, so a lot of vegetarian dishes are served. I love the fact that you sit together with people during meals and kind of share. So it's a very social experience, and uh, and that was good. But I did after I, as I was getting home, I came down with something, and I reckon it was from the tea stalls because I was drinking a lot of tea from the street side stalls. The uh, the tummy just uh, went haywire on the you know after I got back, and I was I was in a bit of a state for a couple of weeks to be honest, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, the precise cause of that I don't know. So it's it's definitely worth uh, it's definitely worth getting making sure you get your you know your, your bottled water and your coke or whatever if you if you if you've got a bit of a um, dicky tummy though. Leave us with one other one other tip that travellers might like to know about Bangladesh. Go there with an open mind, you know, because I think that um, 
I think when I was uh, chatting to people in hotels uh, at the end of the day, you know, foreign travellers were saying, well, you know, didn't really expect the place to be this friendly. Uh, there was a little bit of fear that it uh, that, that could be targeted for some for, for some bad stuff because they were foreign and um, pretty much everybody uh, sat around recounting really positive experiences to what what had happened to them when they, when they met people so i mean i think going there i think the stereotype is one of poverty and um it, it's definitely definitely not a rich country but it's it's a place where the people are, are absolutely fantastic Stuart's article is in show notes. Phil, what's travel news? All right. So, look, a German couple have been fined 950 euros and kicked out of Venice for making coffee on the steps of the Rialto Bridge. Come on, what were they thinking? There's a picture. We'll put it in show notes. There they are set up just on the edge of the canal there. Got little mats set out, little cups, and they're brewing up on the edge of Rialto Bridge. Look, many Italian towns are cracking down on backpacker behaviour, especially, you know, eating and drinking whilst you're on church steps and what have you. And, of course, Venice is working on its over-tourism problem and uh, with they, they say with the stated aim of improving the lives for locals. But what made this couple think they were exempt? <laughs> when coffee calls, Phil, you know that. <laughs> yeah, also, you're in Italy. <laughs> Do you reckon you can get a coffee somewhere? <laughs> but serious one, authorities in Costa Rica have issued an alert to travellers after 20 people died. This is since the beginning of June. 20 people after consuming drinks tainted with methanol. The authorities are saying methanol is sometimes added to boost the alcohol content of drinks sold over the over the bar. But I don't think that's what's happening here because we've seen this before uh, in Bali and I think it's happened in Hungary as well. Some of the unethical bar owners try to boost their profits by brewing their own uh, spirits in the backyard. And it's, it's actually quite a difficult process uh, because if you don't get the temperature control right, a one degree difference, you make methanol instead of alcohol. And as you can see, it has disastrous consequences. Yes. Uh, Kim, have you seen the uh, YouTube video of, um, you know, the model Naomi Campbell and her aircraft boarding routine that she goes through when she gets on the plane? And she's going up the pointy end as well, by the way. She's going up business class end. She puts on rubber gloves. Yes, I saw it. I saw it. She puts on a mask and she uses antiseptic wipes and she wipes down everything, the seat, the armrest, the TV screen, the table, everything. And then she covers it in a blanket and then she sits there for the entire flight with this mask on and she insists it stops her from getting sick because whenever planes descend, people start coughing and sneezing, having to travel with the general public, Naomi. Well, I thought of you when I saw that because you say that you wipe down your table I tray. Do. And I the, do. And the, the remote for the TV. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do it at home as well. I've seen what my kids get up to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, you can just have, you know, like one little antiseptic wipe. You just have give everything a quick rub down. But you don't have to, you know, get the spray bottle out and put rubber gloves on. That's <laughs> a bit over the top, Naomi. Get a, you know, get a grip there, would you? I do agree. What do you do with your houseplants when you go away, Kim? Do you just let them die? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, that is what happens. All right. Well, Contiki, who are partners of World Nomads, they've started in London for their travels out there, a plant hotel. 
you can book him into Kentucky's Plant Hotel. Love it. Thanks for that, Phil. No worries. Phil, we're very lucky at World Nomads to have a culturally diverse team of people. And one of those (laughs) (laughs) one one of our team members is Ash, who happens to be from Bangladesh. It's a shame it wasn't Bangladesh, Ash from Bangladesh. Oh, my God, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> that would make it much more memorable. Yeah, Ash would. can be a bit common sometimes, can't it? But Ash from Bangladesh. Is it? Is it Ash shortened from yeah, something? Yeah, it is. It's Ashrak, so there you go. So it's not quite Ash. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let's get your story first before we chat about food. How did you come to be in Australia? So, yeah, good. it's a very good question, Kim, before Thank we you. get into the food. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well done. Kim. You threw me off there. I thought we are just going to talk about food for the entire day. Oh, I know. There's always a bit of warm-up. Yeah, there's yeah, a, bit of, a bit of fluffing going on in the, the, the setup. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kim, um, my parents actually emigrated over here when I was about five years old. Why? So my dad, he studied overseas when he was in uni, right? And uh, he studied in the US, actually, of all places. And I think... He, when he went back to Bangladesh, I think he enjoyed living in the West, if you will. And he was kind of thinking of countries to go to. Yeah. And I don't think America was somewhere he wanted to take his young family to at that time. It was kind of like late 80s, early 90s. I think he'd lived in Washington, D.C. at the peak of the crack epidemic. And, yeah. Um, and, you know, chatting to my dad, he kind of shortlisted it down to Canada and Australia were the two places. And those are the if – you, if you look at the pattern of immigration to those two countries – there is a quite a distinct, if you will, community from the subcontinent in both Canada and now kind of developing in Australia. And I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the whole former colony Commonwealth thing going on there, but my dad decided to come to Australia. As a five-year-old then, when you arrived here, it, did you speak any English? Because it's kind of school age. Yeah, it is. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't speak English. So I was enrolled in what's called ESL, which yep. is like a English as a secondary language. So I, I actually came just as kindergarten was starting. I remember the week would be divided between, you know, quote-unquote regular kindergarten class and then me and a few other kids that had English as a secondary language or didn't speak English at all would go off to our... ESL special class to pronounce things like chair and ball and, and just some of those <laughs> elemental things that you take for granted. <laughs> now, now, obviously, you know, as a grown-up man, you this apart from looking at you, there's kind of no sign that you are from from Bangladesh. Is that does that make you sad, or have you kept in in touch with your your roots? Well, firstly, thank you for calling me a man. Oh, <laughs> that's good. You like, are. Yeah, You're a fully grown man. I'm a fully grown man, not a child anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Um, to the second part, does it make me sad? No, I feel like I have a connection to both cultures, Kim. You know, there's a part of me that's very distinctly Bangladeshi that I, I can't change and there's a part of me that's very distinctly Australian that I can't change either. You know, at, at, at times growing up, I, I did feel like I didn't necessarily belong to any of mm. of the one, two cultures, but I was kind of like in this no man's land and I know anyone that's listening that has emigrated and is second, third generation um, living where they are, they may have gone through something similar. And it's kind of not until in the last few years that I've kind of been comfortable with my identity. See, I kind of get what you're saying when you said you, you, there was a point there where you didn't feel where, that you were either Bangladeshi or Australian. Right, like belonging to either culture fully. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that would have been magnified going to school and sitting with kids eating Vegemite sandwiches. Sounds <laughs> cliched, but it's <laughs> no, true. It is, it is and so. then going home and what sort of what cuisine was, was your mother cooking or your father? Yeah, so my my parents both cook. My dad is really into his cooking as well, which uh, 
is where I picked up a lot of my cooking skills from watching them both. Um, yeah, certainly weren't many Vegemite sandwiches at home growing up. <laughs> uh, maybe chutney sandwiches, perhaps. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's yeah, very ch- cosmopolitan. Ch- now it is, but back then, not so much, you know. But you, you take a, a chutney sandwich or a bit of chutney rice and curry to school and the waft would probably <laughs> scare most people off. Is that what you took oh, to school? Yeah, from I did for the most part. It, it was funny. I mean, if I think back through primary school, I think it was my mum was just trying to get a lay of the land and figure out what kids took to school in Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah. Initially, it was very much whatever we had at home, the get packed up. Yeah. And I remember there was a canteen lady who was nice enough to heat it up for me doing lunch, which is nice. He's the uh, little Bangladeshi kid. The little Bangladeshi kid. <laughs> Look, as if I didn't stick out visually, now you could smell me. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, <Milo. laughs> And all Just your mum needed it. to do was put either jam, peanut butter or Vegemite and well, a couple of biscuits. Well, this is the thing. I think she wised up later on saying, like, why am I going through all this hassle of packing all this food when I can just get a couple of slices of bread, yeah. some cold cuts and some cheese and voila, I'm done. So yeah. instead of having to spend several minutes, I can do it in under a minute. What, what were they cooking at home? Uh, at home. So Bangladeshi food, it, being in the subcontinent, it's not all that dissimilar to food from the neighbouring countries like India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, any of you that are familiar with that type of cuisine. But there are some differences there. There's kind of like a running joke in the subcontinent um, that Bangladeshis and fish, we love our fish. So Bangladesh... Geographically, there's a lot of rivers and lakes throughout the country. And if you go back to kind of the necessity of sourcing cheap protein, that was it. Instead of trying to grow cattle, which is expensive, or chickens or whatever, you just chuck in a net and get fish. Um, And it's it's almost similar to, you know, and it is an old stereotype of Irish and potatoes. In the subcontinent, as soon as you say Bangladeshi, fish comes in. Fish jokes. Fish jokes come in left, right and centre. So a a lot of uh, fish curries different styles of fish curries, um, preserved fish, pretty much all savoury meals will have some form of rice. Um, And a lot of like lamb, chicken, again, curries of 101 varieties essentially. Now you also said to me that you have been back to Bangladesh as an adult and you experienced something that you didn't get to experience as a child. The main thing that I didn't get to experience, you know, I talked about my parents cooking at home, like traditional Bangladeshi food, like rice and curries of different varieties. Uh, The one thing I didn't get to experience was street food or the street food scene, which is massive in Bangladesh, especially the larger cities. Um, You know, if you've seen footage of that part of the world and hustle and bustle 24-7, you know, elbow to elbow, pretty much 24-7, people are busy, they need something that's inexpensive on the go. And that's where the kind of the street food scene comes up. There's so much variety of it. There's snacks like rice-based snacks, uh, meat-based snacks. Is it healthy? Do you have to watch your tummy? Yeah, no, that, that's a very good question. And uh, the kind of the rules that you apply when eating street food in any other country apply here. You know, the things to look out for, does that place have high turnover? You know, what kind of a crowd does it draw? Yep. Um, so, yeah, look, it's hit and miss. There are certainly some that may give you, you know, quote-unquote deli belly or taka belly. Um, <laughs> for the most part, it's not taking a toll on his stomach. They give you the Bangla dash. You have to dash to the door. <laughs> dash. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Very dash good. Dad joke. Dad joke. Okay, what about etiquette if we're travelling there? Um, I've also noticed there's a lot of eating with your hands. Yeah, the, the utensils of the subcontinent, your right hand yeah. essentially. So right hand for eating, yeah. left hand for cleaning. Not, no, not simultaneously. No. Uh, you <laughs> I mean, that, that is a graphic. Well, it depends. That is, it depends if you, if you get you the Bangladesh. 
it's like an unspoken rule. Like you generally wouldn't shake someone no. if, you, if you're shaking hands. You wouldn't extend your left hand, oh. even if you're le- left-handed. It would generally be the right hand because you know that's seen as the the hand that you clean with. What about drinks? You got any special drinks? Any special drinks? Are you talking about alcoholic beverages? No, no, oh, you general. know, like lassies. Or okay, yeah, like of course. That, you know? uh, well, I'll cover the alcoholic part off first. Yeah. It's probably more available in the major cities. Once you yeah. go outside, it's probably a little bit more difficult to get. Um, but in terms of drinks, yeah, the, the lassie is very popular there yeah. as well. Um, one, it's kind of a drink and a dessert at the same time, so it's got liquid and solid parts to it. Getting <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a left hand, right hand. <laughs> um, it's called Faluda. Yeah, if you guys have heard of it. Nope. nope. Um, so it's kind of milk base with a little bit of rose water, a little bit of ice cream through it, lychees, jelly, apples. Sounds and Turkish. It, it probably, you know, that it probably came from that part of the world because if you look at the history of, of the subcontinent um, before the British yeah. ruled it, it was uh, the the Mughals yeah. uh, who ruled it for, I believe, three or 400 years, yeah. the entire subcontinent, and they are of Turkic descent. So you'll find that, not just in Bangladesh, but across the subcontinent, a dessert that have kind of well, almost Persian or Turkish or Central Asian inspired. All right, final question. Sure. If, if you, your family hadn't have emigrated, what would your life look like? If I had stayed in Bangladesh, well, that's, that's a very deep, profound question. Anyway. Pre- president. <laughs> president. Uh, the president of the Street Food Association. You would have an idea, though, given no. obviously your father's educated, so yeah. that would yeah. have set you apart from... Um, yeah, so my, my background, my my dad, my grandfather before him, very, uh, I guess you'd call middle class, public servant kind yeah. of roles. Uh, I imagine I would have been something similar. That country has changed a lot, though, since yeah. my parents came here. And even in the few times I've been back, a few years apart, you've, there's like a noticeable difference uh, in terms of wealth being created for people that were poorer, being pulled out of poverty into the middle classes. So a lot happening there. There's a, it's difficult to say. You know, Maybe I'd be doing something similar to what I'm doing here, working in travel insurance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, digital marketing. Something digital like that. marketing, yeah. yeah. Nice answer. That's a great question. That's a great question. Yeah. I like that one. Isn't, yeah. it, isn't that fascinating when you think about the yeah. sliding the doors? Road. Yeah, the sliding doors, the, sliding the door one stuff. decision that someone made a couple of generations back that's led you to this point. Thank you so much for sharing Thanks that. for having me, guys. Pleasure. Pleasure. I love having people in the studio. It's great. It is. Thanks, Ash. Cheers. Sarah is the creator and the host of the podcast, Postcard Academy, where each week she interviews people who've packed up everything to start a new adventure in another part of the world. Now, Sarah fits in well with this podcast, I thought so anyway, after listening to Ash, whose parents emigrated from Bangladesh to Australia, and Phil, your parents too, from the UK to Australia. Yeah, look, Sarah's American, but after a trip to the UK, she decided she wanted to live there. So... How did she do it? I spent a semester uh, in London and really fell in love with the city and I did not want to leave. But as an American, I couldn't figure out a way to stay there. So after uh, that semester, I went back to the States and many years went by before I did any international travel again. And then at some point when I was living in New York, I realized just by chance that I might be eligible for Italian citizenship through my Italian ancestry. And I got really excited about that and started to do research and gather all the documents that I needed. And those documents went back generations and they had so many misspellings. And it was like a very complicated process to apply 
in America, but I wanted to do it. And so I found a woman online to translate my documents for me because I had to get them from English to Italian. And she said, you know, it could take you up to a year if you stay here in the States and apply here. But if you move to Italy, you could probably get your passport in like a month or two. And so I was like, really? Okay, stranger I've never met before. <laughs> and um, so based on this advice from this person who was helping me out online in 2010, I left New York and moved to Italy and I became a, an EU citizen and an Italian citizen. Wow. And I've been here ever since. So how far back did your ancestry go? It was my great-grandparents. I think, you know, I had realized a number of years ago that citizenship was possible through bloodline, but I had always thought it was your grandparents. But for Italy, it's not. You can go back much further than that as long as you can prove your bloodline. Okay, there'll be a few people listening now that will be going back through their family tree. <laughs> There's a few bureaucratic, like very arbitrary rules. So if my great-grandparents had naturalized before my grandfather was born, I would have been ineligible. But because they waited to naturalize uh, as U.S. citizens after he was born, then all of the generations that came after were considered, you know, Italian in a certain way. And so that's why I was eligible for citizenship. So, but yes, if you think you might be eligible, go for it. It's amazing having a second passport. I could only imagine. So how has travel changed you then, Sarah? Well, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And, you know, I originally wanted to live abroad because I love traveling and learning about different cultures and trying new food. But I did not expect that living abroad would transform my values. And it really has. When I was living in New York, I thought we were the most enlightened, open-minded people in the world. Uh, I didn't realize how caught up I was in my own culture, especially the world work culture. I had really amazing colleagues, but when I think about to when I think about our lifestyle back then, it was just you know, the typical, stereotypical American lifestyle of just always on the clock, coming in when you're sick, eating lunch at your desk every day, having a handful of vacation days a year. And then we would look at the Europeans and just be like, oh, they're on vacation again. They're so lazy. <laughs> like they need to get their priorities in order. And now I realize, oh, those Europeans had the right priorities. They have lives and they prioritize health and family and free time. And I'm generalizing here, not every country is like that, not every person is like that. But these are values that I think people in the US say they want, but it's how people in other parts of the world actually live. And so now I believe it's important to prioritize the people and the things that we love and make our work life fit around that rather than the reverse. Your travel, it led you to podcasting, uh, which is one of the reasons we're chatting to you, but pri primarily you focus on female guests. So why have you chosen to do that? Yeah. So I got the idea uh, for Postcard Academy, my travel podcast, when I was working really crazy hours at a tech startup. And as an American expat, I still wanted to make 
the most of my time in Europe and travel. So even though I didn't have a ton of time to plan, I just wanted to get on a plane on the weekends and just sit back in my seat and listen to a podcast about like the insider cool things to do in whatever city I was going to. And I couldn't find the show that I was looking for. So I decided to <laughs> create it myself um, later after I left that job when I had more time. So I combined podcasts and travel to create Postcard Academy. And it's for anyone who loves travel and is interested in living abroad. And I'm especially interested in, in featuring women as my guests because I was seeing a stereotype of women who travel either women running around in bikinis living the perfect life on Instagram or in books and in films women traveling because they were in some kind of crisis they were either trying to get over a divorce or some other trauma and I think those stories are very important and you know travel can be very healing but i wanted to share stories of women who packed up everything and just set off on an adventure for the love of it yeah. so smashing the eat pray love theory exactly <laughs> yeah i mean there's been many films and books and it's just actually not the same for guys and i i, re I realized i was giving hollywood a pass because when i was seeing those sort of anguished memoirs coming out i thought oh well maybe happy stories just don't have the narrative arc that they're looking for but then i realized guys who have travel shows and write travel books they are just swashbuckling around and <laughs> drinking beer and having the best time and they don't have to like give a reason for it or you know anguish over why they're doing this they just do it and women out there are doing it too they're just not getting featured as much and so so that's why I chose like this theme and these kinds of guests because I wanted to put them in the spotlight. So why do you believe that the travel is important? You've touched on that a little in the conversation so far, but if you could sum it up. Well, I would say I think travel and experiencing new cultures and meeting diverse people has never been more important Unfortunately, nationalism is rising around the world. If you listen to the news on any day, you're probably going to hear some politician around the world railing about how horrible the foreigners are and they're coming to get us. Um, and thankfully, we are not our governments. We as individuals can go out and meet each other and learn from each other and realize that the world is not as scary and as bad as the media and world leaders would make it out to be. So I truly believe that travel and living abroad is the most effective form of diplomacy. Well said, Sarah. Links to her site and podcast in our show notes. A couple of practical things to know about Bangladesh. Passports must be valid for uh, six months beyond your planned stay. That's fairly standard, but they're pretty strict on it there. Uh, you do need a visa to get into Bangladesh. And of course, you must have an onward ticket. Now, we mentioned earlier we had recently featured a couple of special podcast episodes in place of our destination episodes, including Chernobyl. Now, if you haven't listened and you've watched the TV show, tune in. Having that place become a big um, disaster tourist amusement park where young people who are going to hopefully go on and procreate visit in the hundreds of thousands, that's a terrible idea. It's also a pretty disrespectful idea. I mean, people suffer greatly from that accident and then to make it a form of entertainment and tourism 
it is, I think, a little unconscionable. Well, that wraps up this episode. You can get in touch with us with ideas or feedback by emailing podcast at worldnomads.com. And to listen to our episodes, grab them from wherever you get your favourite podcasts. And if you enjoy, subscribe so you don't miss an episode and feel free to share the episodes and rate them also among your network and and give us a rating, as I said. Um, What's next, Phil? Uh, yep, tell your friends about us. That would be great. Australian filmmaker Miles Rowland. He was recently filming with um, environmentalist Tim Jarvis on the 250 project and then ended up in Tanzania in the middle of a Maasai circumcision ceremony. Well, see you next Ow. week. Bye. Yeah. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries. <laughs>